Isaiah 36, verse 1. We'll start right there. Now, in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. So already you recognize we're in something different now. We've been studying Isaiah, and we have been given woes and, and, and burdens and prophecies. And as each chapter begins, we have the sense that, okay, the, the, the Lord has a word for His people or a word for these enemies. Well, right now, we're immediately thrown into a history. And these four chapters are the only historical section of the book of Isaiah, at least in terms of telling an historical event or an historical account. So 36 through 39 are all a history, all dealing with Hezekiah, who was king during part of the lifetime of Isaiah. Hezekiah and Isaiah, based on other passages, other scriptures, were very close. Uh, Ultimately, were trusted friends. Hezekiah very much admired the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah appreciated King Hezekiah. And together, they worked some amazing things that happened in the southern kingdom of Judah over a period of some 14 years during the early part of the rule of King Hezekiah. In fact, we're told prior to this chapter that we're beginning in 2 Chronicles 29, and by the way, 2 Kings 18-20 through and 2 Chronicles 32, these are the two sections that are paralleled in Isaiah 36-39. through So that's why they're up there in red, if you can see the red behind me. Uh, Those are the two sections in in the history of Israel that parallel what we're covering tonight. 2 Chronicles 29 verse 2, however, says the following, Hezekiah did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Now, if you went through our study of 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, you know that is a big deal. As a matter of fact, it's what I called at that time the gold standard of devotion. This is the gold standard of what you could call Davidic devotion. Only three kings were referred to this way. One was obviously David himself, who did right in the sight of the Lord, who was a man after God's own heart. So David becomes the gold standard, even for his sin, even for his abject failure with Bathsheba. Still, he was the one that God says, that's the pattern for you kings, King David. It's a man after my own heart. David, passionate for God. The warrior king, the shepherd of Israel, the poet who loved the Lord with all his heart. And so David is the gold standard. After David, for all the kings of Judah and Israel combined, there were only two kings who lived up to that standard. Two kings in all of the listing of the kings who would receive this statement, they did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. And that's Hezekiah and after him, Josiah. Hezekiah and Josiah are the only two kings. All the rest of the kings, there were other good ones, they just came up short. Only these two did according to all that their father David had done. Hezekiah was just 25 years old when he took the throne. He was a young man. Began to reign over the people of Judah, and at the very outset of his reign, he came on with a youthful passion. He was the son of King Ahaz. Ahaz was a mess. Ahaz was wicked, Ahaz was evil. He introduced all kinds of new idolatry into Judah. He was a bad dude. Somehow Hezekiah, perhaps because of his mother, perhaps because of his relationship with Isaiah, somehow Hezekiah comes along and turns a corner and goes the opposite direction of his father. With youthful passion, 25-year-old Hezekiah proclaimed, 2 Chronicles 29, verse 10, Now it is in my heart 
to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that His burning anger may turn away from us. Hezekiah's desire, as he took the throne, as he gave his inaugural address, was to return the people back to the Lord, and he did it. Over those first 14 years, a series of reforms in the land. A great reformation in Judah. First, Hezekiah comes along and he restored temple worship. You realize there were chunks of time in the history of Israel, not just when they were in the dispersion, not just when they were in Babylonian captivity, but while they were in the land and the temple was standing, there were huge chunks of time where the people didn't worship at all. Under King Ahaz, the temple was shut down. The sacrifices stopped. The lampstand went out. The doors to the temple were shut closed. He even took some of the implements, the gold and the silver, out of the temple and destroyed them for his own wealth. That's what Ahaz did. Hezekiah comes along, and first thing he does to restore temple worship, he reconsecrated the priests. He called the Levites together, gathered them in the square out in front of the temple, and said, Consecrate yourselves to the Lord. Then it's time to get back to your calling. So he reconsecrated the priests. He had them reopen those temple doors, which were shut and sealed by Ahaz. He inspired them to go in and to relight the lampstands. The lampstands, plural. The lampstands, there were multiple lampstands in Solomon's temple, not just the one in the tabernacle, but multiple. And he got them all relit, reburning, lighting up the inside of the temple because it had gone dark. He directed a return to the daily offering of incense. Incense hadn't been burned during the entire reign of Ahaz, which means prayer wasn't going up. When worship's not happening, people, a heart, the heart of a people goes south very quickly. In fact, when worship to the one true God doesn't happen, people start to worship other things. Which is why worship is so critical. Let me just remind you, and I know I'm, I'm going to preach to the choir a lot tonight. You're here. Praise God. You've spent time worshiping. You're worshiping Sundays. You know the value. But when we cut out worship, we will inevitably, naturally, look for other things to worship. We might not even know we're doing it. But the worship of the one true God keeps our hearts and our minds focused on Him. When we cut back on worship, and we may think, well, I'm going to skip out on worship, I'll just come to Bible study. You are selling yourself short, and you will find yourself worshiping something else. And it might be your TV, and it might be your cars, or it might be your house, or a spouse, or a friend, or something else in the world will catch your attention because the human heart was created to worship. Hezekiah knows this. So he inspires all of these things. He commanded the priest to renew the daily sacrifices. Sacrifice didn't happen during Ahaz. You know what that means? In Jewish speak, that means sin was just piling up. Because it was only through the daily sacrifices that the sins were atoned for. That was covered over. And when the sins were not being covered over through sacrifice, God was just watching the sin go from bad to worse. And there was no forgiveness. And the Lord's anger was burning against Judah. Just as it had burned against Israel. And Israel ended up wiped out. So all these things Hezekiah did to restore the temple. But he didn't stop there. He reinstated the annual Passover, which had ceased under Ahaz. He sends out an invitation. Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 6 tells us he sent letters by courier throughout all the land. And by the way, this is interesting. Not only to all the people of the kingdom of Judah. Second Chronicles 30, verse 6 tells us specifically that he sent couriers to the escaped remnant of Israel. 
So those who would say, well, the 10, 12 tribes were lost. No, they weren't. God always maintains a remnant. And He maintained a remnant of His people. And there were people in the land who had hidden out. Some who had fled south to Judah. Some who had fled to other surrounding nations to hide out. And Hezekiah got word out to them. All Jewish people, all the people of Israel, come back to Jerusalem for Passover. Let's celebrate this together. And he got that rolling annually again. Wonderful. He also removed the pagan idols from the high places. Wisely, while he restored worship to the one true God, he destroyed worship to all the false gods. And in so doing, gave the Jewish people once again a central focus. Worship of the Lord. And for all of this, Hezekiah also took it very personally. He didn't just sit up on his high throne and command these things to be done by others. He did it himself. In fact, he rededicated what's called the king's portion in an act of personal devotion. The king's portion. Second Chronicles 31 verse 3 says he also appointed the king's portion of his own goods for the burnt offerings, namely for the morning and the evening burnt offerings, and the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths and for the new moons, for the fixed festivals, as it is written in the law of the Lord. And by the way, the Bible tells us Hezekiah became a very, very wealthy king. He was a rich guy. He amassed all kinds of wealth. But that wealth was dedicated. And he took the responsibility of the king to provide for sacrifices. The king's portion. He didn't ask the people to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. you got to love Hezekiah. He invested himself in a great reformation. In all these restorative things. So forget good King Winchesless. <laughs> this is good King Hezekiah. And you need to see him that way. You need to understand what's going on. Because there's a reason Isaiah includes this historical section in his book. There's a very specific reason, I believe, why it's not just all prophecies, but he pauses and throws four chapters in here, and it's not just to proof text his prophecy. You know, he's been giving all these prophecies so far, and some scholars say, oh, well, the historical section is here to prove that the things Isaiah already said would come true, and they did. So that's why he included it. No, I don't believe so. This is more than an historical supplement to the woes and the burning burdens of the previous chapters. And if we pay close attention tonight, I think you'll see this. The Spirit of Christ has a lesson for us here. And we begin by looking at very clearly the tactics of the adversary. Because the tactics of Assyria reveal the tactics of the adversary. As we look through this, and I'm going to give you four or five of them, you're going to see more. As you see things, jot them down. But you can watch the way the enemy of Assyria, the enemy of the people of Israel, is very similar to the enemy of the people of God. And how Assyria is like our adversary, the devil, and Satan. So watch for the parallels here in chapter 36. Again, 14 years have gone by. The 25-year-old is now 39. He's at midlife and he's about to hit a serious crisis. He's done a lot of good. But now with chapter 36, Hezekiah is about to enter the toughest year of his life. He will face two immense threats. And the first is Sennacherib of Assyria. The second, in that same year, is sickness to the point of death. 2 Chronicles 32, verse 1, After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities and thought to break into them for himself. 
Second Chronicles 32, verse 24, toward the end of that same chapter, tells us, in those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. This was all at the same time, gang. I always saw these as two separate events. But it's significant that they happened together. So watch this. Watch this as we go. Oh, wait, one more question. <laughs> when did these mortally menacing events occur? Well, at the same time, Rick, right? What do you think, Sarah? After the faithfulness. After the faithful acts. 14 years of reformation. 14 years of revival. 14 years of faithfulness on the part of Hezekiah. And all of these attacks did not happen before. They happened after. Note that. Why did Hezekiah institute the reforms in the first place? Second Chronicles 29.10 again tells us to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that His burning anger may turn away from us. And the world would say, well, Hezekiah didn't work out so good, did it? You did all these things. You worked so hard. All these reforms. You brought about great revival. 14 years in the land. And now, you're getting attacked on every side. Apparently, it didn't work. First tactic of the enemy. First tactic of the enemy, number one, caused chaos after consecration. Chaos after consecration. Have you ever said this? I'm doing everything right. Why is everything going wrong? And Hezekiah did. He did all these things to get right, but the menace has not been removed. The adversary often does this. Listen, he attacks immediately after revival. You're not even down the mountain from retreat, and he's already looking for ways to attack. Why does he do this? To bewilder the believer. He does it to ransack those who are revived. He doesn't wait. He doesn't let it settle in and and take root and strengthen the believer. No, he attacks immediately as if to say, hey, you're worshiping God, you're doing all the right things, but it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. That's the enemy. Lord, I'm following you faithfully. Is this what I get for it? Think about Jesus. We're told in Matthew 3.16, immediately after being baptized, Jesus came up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. And He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on Him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I can't even imagine a greater mountaintop moment than that. The Spirit's on Him. The Lord is speaking praise of His name. The heavens are open. A marvelous moment. And immediately we're told in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That always bothered me. Did it bother you? Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And the Bible tells us that God Himself doesn't tempt anyone. But we're tempted when our own lust, you know, gives birth to sin and sin produces death. I mean, that's, that's our fault, right? So how is it that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Now listen, that might be a translation issue. Because, and I look this up because it's different in the book of Luke. Listen to how it said in Luke. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Not led by the Spirit to be tempted, but Luke says he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. And while he was there, he was being tempted by the devil. Which shows me two different agendas. The Spirit's agenda 
to be alone with Jesus, to have Jesus in that place of retreat, and the devil's agenda to tempt. Right. So I read Luke and I go, okay, I get that. But I go back to Matthew. It says, to be tempted by the devil. The same word is used in both places, peirazzo. Peirazzo. The only difference between the way the word is spoken is, is the, the verb tense. In Matthew, it's the errorist passive, and in Luke, it's the present passive. Passive meaning it happened to Jesus. He was tempted by another. Okay, it was, it was forced upon him. But errorist simply means, well, best translated, the errorist passive, Matthew 4.1, would be having been, as, a bit, as opposed to to be tempted. Having been tempted. It's a little more awkward in the English, but listen to it that way. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, having been tempted by the devil. See the difference? Well, that fits a whole lot better with Luke, doesn't it? And that being the case, and I believe it is, and in Luke, being tempted by the devil, that's the present passive, it basically just means continuously acted upon. It was a continual tempting. The devil kept coming at him and at him and at him again and again and again. So we understand the devil's intentions. What were Jesus' intentions? What were the Spirit's intentions? Now I submit to you, that Jesus, blessed by His Father, full of the Holy Spirit, was led out for a spiritual retreat prior to beginning His ministry, and that is when the devil hit. When He went out for retreat. When He was headed out for rest. When He was sinking solace and solitude in a time to really dial down, has that ever happened to you? I'm going to set aside this day, Lord, and you and I, we're going to get away together and we're going to enjoy each other and I can't wait. And the day comes and everything possible happens to mess it up. Well, that's how the enemy functions. Chaos after consecration. Consecrated to the Lord, Jesus goes out into the wilderness and immediately chaos hits and temptation hits. And we're also told at the end of Luke chapter 4, verse 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. More chaos would be coming. And one of the most opportune times of the enemy is when you are in the midst of or just coming out of a spiritual revival or resurgence. Understand that, gang. He does this to make you question if it's worth it. So if you're going into a place of devotion, a time of worship, an opportunity to retreat and relax and get away with the Lord, understand attacks may very well come either while you're retreating or the second you set foot back on the land. It happens every time I go to Israel. Bless. It's just amazing. Every time I go to Israel, the second I land, I've got four or five crises I have to deal with. Immediately. And it always bugged me. Not anymore. I get it. Chaos after consecration. The enemy is going after you. So, so gang, here's what you do. You don't put your faith in feelings of revival. You put your, your, your faith in Christ. It's not in the calm or in the chaos, it's in the Christ. So whether you're in calm or chaos is beside the point, as long as you are in Christ. The storm can be blowing, you're in Christ. The sea can be calm, you're in Christ. Either way, that's the place to be. So going on, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah... Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. So after all these reforms, verse 2, And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish 
to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood up by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field, Rabshakeh. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joab, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Rabshakeh. Rabshakeh, shaky, whatever you want to call him. This was not a name. Rabshakeh is not his name. It's his title. The title Rabshakeh in the Assyrian dialect, it's field commander. So this guy was the field commander or, or the chief of the men. And this field commander comes out. And the field commander's sole purpose was to seed fear into the hearts of the people of Judah. That was the role. They send out the field commander and he comes up and begins talking to the leaders. But all the warriors on the wall could hear everything he was saying. He made sure of it, as you'll see. What's going on here? Gang, understand Satan has field commanders. Satan has an organized antichrist movement. Satan has demons and devils at his whim and at his will and, and a structure, literally a structure of spiritual attack. He has field commanders. In the book of Daniel, we see the principalities. We see the prince of Persia. Remember that story that that Gabriel was trying to get through to get to Daniel, but he couldn't get through because the prince of Persia was stopping him. And he had to call upon Michael to double down and fight against the prince of Persia so that Gabriel could come bring his message. A field commander. And the field commanders of the enemy have a sole purpose, gang. It is to foment fear. This is the second thing, second, second tactic. Foment fear among the faithful. Foment fear among the faithful. There's a method to the madness of Satan. Ephesians 6.12, you know the verse, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the purpose of these principalities, one of the number one purposes, is to foment fear among the faithful. If he can add an element of anxiety, he damages the saints. If he can get us worried, as a church body, if he can start to just sow a little dissent, a few questions, if he can unnerve some people, I see something going on, I am not comfortable with that at all. The church is going to fall apart. Can I just remind you, Jesus said, I will build my church. You think Jesus' church is going to fall apart? The bridge might, if God is through with it. (laughs) I hope not. I have to go find another job, Brian, but... No, it's His church. And we spend far too much time afraid when Jesus is the master builder. And He's the one putting it together. If we'll just look to Him and not look to our fears, we'll be fine. You know what drives out fear better than any other thing, right? What is the single greatest thing to drive out fear? No, love. You're really on tonight. It's love. Faith is great. Faith is necessary. But even faith can get shaky if, if fear it can get rap shaky. If fear comes in there, faith can start to rattle, but not love. Remember what John says? There is no fear in love. First John four eighteen. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. And you might say, Well, yeah, perfect love drives out fear, but my love is not perfect. I know that, but his is. His perfect love drives out my fear. Because I know He has a plan. He's working it. He's got it going on. I don't have to worry about that. 
As Paul said in Romans 8.38, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's love. His love for you that will strengthen you and drive out fear. So let me just tell you something tonight. God loves you. He loves you so much. Let that wash all fear away. God loves me. Oh, I just I love to say that. He loves me. I'm his favorite, you know. <laughs> but the good news is, so are you. We're all favorites. <laughs> so don't fear the field commanders, no matter how they rage like Rabshakeh. Fear the Lord. Love Him. His perfect love casts out fear. Verse 4. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? I say your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely? And whom have you rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. He's right about that. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. And by the way, Rabshakeh uses the name of God here. If you say to me, we trust in this Yahweh. Now listen, he says, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now therefore, come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses, if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? (laughs) Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? No. The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Wow. Talk about arrogance. And by the way, the pride of Assyria was huge. They thought that they were unstoppable. This massive, mighty kingdom, this great army, they were just rolling over every city, wiping them out. By the time they surrounded Jerusalem, gang, they had taken down 46 cities in Judah. 46. And with each one, many of them were one-time Canaanite strongholds that the, the people of Judah had built up and strengthened. And even the strongholds, the, embattled, the, the, the battlements against the enemy, wiped out. And you recall we said in another study that Assyria didn't just come from the north. They came down from the north, but then came back down and around to the south and up to Lachish, which is south of Jerusalem, destroying everything in their wake, wiping everybody out, taking them down. And Jerusalem, now that they're surrounding Jerusalem, Jerusalem is just another city to the Assyrians. It's just one more to take out. It's a final one to take down. And by the way, the God of Judah, this, this Yahweh, just another God. We've taken out all these other nations. We've taken out their gods. We're going to take out you and your gods as well. That's what this guy is saying. Third thing the enemy loves to do, spread speculation to destabilize security. Spread speculation to destabilize security. In verse 7, I'm sure you caught it. 
Rav Sheka says, Hezekiah has even torn down the high places and altars of the worship of your God. No, he hadn't. You know better than that. He didn't tear down the high places of worship of Yahweh. He tore down the high places of worship of pagan gods, right? He tore down the idols of the nations, of these, these other gods who were impotent, who could not save Judah. That's what he tore down. But you know, I think there were probably people in Judah who used to go up to those high places who are a little worried now that they couldn't go there anymore. They were not as sure as Hezekiah, their king, that Jerusalem was the only place that they should go to worship God. You realize, and we've talked about this, the problem with idolatry wasn't that they replaced God, it was they added to God. And when they would go up to these high places, it wasn't that they were rejecting God outright, it's that they will worship God too, but, but I really want to worship Baal because I need some help with my business. I want to worship Asherah because we're having trouble having children. So we need some fertility help. Let's go to, I, I, know, I believe in the God of the Jewish people, my God, he's my God, Abraham, Isaac, that's good. God of those three and God of all of our history and past, but, but Asherah can help in this situation. Or perhaps Molech. And so they would add, it was always God and. That's the problem with idolatry. Same problem today. Anytime it's God plus something else. God and even your ingenuity. God and your bright ideas. God and the help of some other people or places or things. And so there were people there who as they watched Hezekiah taking down these high places had to be shaking a little bit. Had to be worried. Boy, we're putting all our eggs in one basket in Jerusalem. That's such a good idea. Speculation gang always plays off ignorance. And that's what they're doing. That's what this Rav Sheikh is doing. He's playing off the fears of the people. He's playing off the ignorance of the people. Spreading this speculation to destabilize those who are ignorant of the true word of God. I read a study today. It just came out, it was uh, done by the American Bible Society talking about the Bible in America. And there was some good news and there was some bad news. And the good news was that 82% of Americans still believe in the value of the Bible. Now that's down from 86% one year ago. But still, we're in the 80s. So, alright, we got a B. Right? America has a B in terms of how it views the Bible. But here's where it gets a little dicey. 46% of Americans, almost half, 46%, believe the Bible and the Book of Mormon and the Koran are all of the same type of value. They're all valuable holy books and all should be revered. So of those 82% who believe in the value of the Word of God, half of those, more than half, also would agree that the others... You know what it is? It is ignorance. It is an abject and a frightening ignorance that has come upon this country that at one time the Bible was the Word of God. In our country, culturally, even people who are not church-going or would not consider themselves praying people would at least say, yes, the Bible is God's Word. Not anymore. We have a large percentage of people, and what is it? It is ignorance to the Word. People are not hearing the Word anymore, and when you don't hear the Word, how can you be wise in it? How can you understand the amazing value of this book? And then along comes speculation. And here's the problem. If we are not well fed on the Word and people begin to speculate, it undermines. It destabilizes faith. And there's a lot of loose and weak faith 
in the church today. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, Paul says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What does that mean? How do I do that? That's a great question to ask yourself. How do I take every thought captive to Christ Jesus? Gang, it means that we know what He commands because we're in His Word. And it means that we take every confusion, every worry, every anxiety and thought we take directly to Him in prayer. We're in His Word and we're constant in prayer. And that's how you take every speculation and you destroy it. That's how you hold every thought captive to Christ. And by the way, if you're only in His Word, but you're not spending the time in prayer, then when confusing thoughts come, you you can try and figure it out by the Word, but you're never taking it to the Lord. Or if you're only and always in prayer, but you're never checking against His Word, you, you don't know what the standards are. You don't know what the commands are. Speculation plays off ignorance. Most speculators and skeptics speak without knowledge. Most of the questions I hear from critics of the Bible are stupid questions. If you know the Bible. If you don't know the Bible, they destabilize your faith. Questions like, or statements, the Bible's full of contradictions. You know what my first question when I hear that is? Have you read it? Show me one. Just show me one. And it's always the subject that's immediately changed. Or the critic will say, the God of the Bible is harsh and judgmental. Really? Based on what? Well, I heard that, okay. Did you read yourself? Do you understand God's purpose throughout the Hebrew Scriptures? And you all know, if you spend much time in the Hebrew Scriptures really looking at it, this is a God who passionately is head over heels in love with His people. And at the same time that he's in love with Israel, he's offering people outside of Israel all manner of time to come to repentance and find him. He's not ignoring them. But if you don't read the word, you're not going to know that. The evidence that Jesus even existed is very weak. Really? Where'd you get that? We have more evidence that Jesus existed than we do that George Washington existed. Do you know that? George Washington of 200 years ago? Yeah, we got more evidence about Jesus. More proofs that he walked the earth. We have more proofs of the prophecies. We have more proofs of the resurrection of Christ than we have that Socrates or Plato or any of these guys existed at all. And yet people accept them without question. The skeptic always plays off ignorance. But if you know the word, if you know what you believe, and you know why you believe it, suddenly the questions of the skeptic, all these speculations, they just... They just float away. Most critics, like this Rabshakeh, are misinformed, but they play off the ignorance of the people. And that's what he's doing. Calling out things that are not true, they're not to be concerned about. Here's a great question to ask the critic. The one Jesus asked Pilate. And I love the way he responds. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? What what are you saying, Jesus? He's saying, are you asking because you really want to know the truth, Pilate? Or are you just parroting what you've heard? It's a good question, because if someone is just parroting what they've heard and they're not really seeking the truth, you might not want to waste your time. Or you might encourage them, look, go back, do your homework, and then come talk to me. Read the Bible. When you're done reading the Bible, I'd love to have this conversation. 
Otherwise, you're just going to get into an argument, and again, you're back into this place of speculations. Then Rabshakeh, he employs another enemy tactic. Not only this whole issue of speculation, but in verse 8, he brings bargaining against belief. Bargaining against belief. He says, therefore, come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to, on your part to set riders on them. More ignorance on Rabshakeh's part. The Lord said, don't amass for yourself horses. So why would I want to make a deal with someone who's going to give me a lot of horses when God says, I don't want you to have a lot of horses? But he says, let's make a deal. He is the Monty Hall of Assyria right here. You know, come on, bargain with me. And the enemy today would say to you, he'd say to me, look, your Christianity is fine. It's fine. Own a Bible, no problem. You know, don't read it. Go to church, that, you know, on occasion. You don't need to go every Sunday. Just, that's okay if you want to go to church. But you got to make a few concessions, right? Because if you go every Sunday and you read your Bible and you're praying and all that, you're going to be a little weird. You're going to be one of those kind of religious nuts. So let's make some concessions. Don't be too holy. And whether Christians would admit it or not, I know a lot of people who are afraid of looking too holy. Why? The enemy is saying, make concessions. Compromise. It's one of my favorite lines from Chariots of Fire. Compromise is the language of the devil. And it is. It's what, it's what the devil speaks. And he speaks it with great success. And so Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are... We are the temple of the living God, he says. Just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, here's what he says, listen, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, says the Lord. Throughout Scripture, we have this one resounding theme when it comes to righteousness. Be different. Be righteous. Be holy, the Lord says, because I am holy. Don't try to fit the mold of the world. Do not make concessions. When Monty says, let's make a deal, you say, eh, I'm done playing. The only one I will make any deal with is my Lord Jesus Christ to be more like Him. Verse 11. Well, then Eliakim and Shebna and Yoah said to Rabshakeh, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand. And do not speak with us in Judean, or Hebrew, in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said, Has my This guy's vile. Listen to what he says. Has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words, and not to the men who sit on the wall, doomed to eat their own dung and, dung and drink their own urine with you? This guy's... Nice guy. Really. Really. And then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean. So he rejects their request and says loudly, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. 
For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me, and eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree, and drink each of the waters of his own cistern. Full-on, bold-faced lie that would not happen. If they dealt with the Assyrians, if they came out of the city in that moment, they would be let off with fish hooks in their noses and muzzles on their mouths and taken into captivity. That's what Assyria did. They never let the people be at peace once they conquered them, ever. But he's lying through his teeth. Make your peace with me. Until I come, verse 17, and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. I'll take you to a nice place. It's a little relocation, but you're going to love it. Right. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, verse 18, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered this land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Who are the gods of, or where are the gods of Hamat and Arpad? Where are the gods of Savarbaim? And when have they delivered Assyria or Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from my hand? And this one just riles me up, gang. Because what Rabshika is doing here, he is attacking the I am by association with the are nots. And think about that. He is attacking the I am by associating Yahweh, God, with the are nots. Attacking the one true God by associating Him with those who are not gods. Who are false gods. Who are nothing more than than stone and wooden idols. Attack by association. And the adversary uses this one very effectively. Attack by association. The adversary would say to believers today, everybody has their gods and none of their gods really make any difference. The adversary would say the God of Mormonism... Same God. God of Islam, same God. You know, all the different gods. And, and that, that's where we're at. That's, that's where our, our military is at. I've shared with you before in um, Arlington National Cemetery, there are multiple different insignias that you can put on the gravestone now. It used to be a cross or a star of David. Now you can put the cross, you can put the star of David, you can put the crescent moon of Islam, you can put the signal for Wicca. You might as well stamp a coexist license plate bumper sticker on every one of the graves because that's that's what it is. It's all these, and you can just go down a list and pick the one that you like. Oh, I like the peace sign. I think I'll have that on my grave. You know, rest in peace. That'd be uh, ironic. The devil would say to you, "What makes you think your God or your view of God is the right one? How can you be sure? I mean." Yeah, I know you believe what you believe, but there are some other people who really honestly, sincerely believe in their God. And your faith is really no different than any other faith in the world. Same God or gods, just different names, different perspectives, right? And that's why I am so personally opposed to blurring the lines of faith between Christianity, true biblical Christianity, and any other religion. That's right. Because you can say, well, it's just another name for God. We've had this conversation. Allah is just another name for God. No, it's not. Allah is a very definitely characterized God in the Quran who is absolutely different in nature and action than the God of the Bible. You cannot say same name. And if you're going to say they have the different name, same God, you might as well say Baal is the same God, just a different name. After all, Baal in the Canaanite language just means Lord. 
So if you bring a Canaanite to Jewish faith, just you can keep calling him Baal. That's okay. That's the name you are used to. It's not true. And yet the enemy associates the I am with the are nots. That's what he does. Let's just kind of all hang together. Gang, you know this God is not a local God. Oh, he's a personal God, but he is not localized. He is he is beyond. He is not limited to man's religions. He is not limited to man's view of him. He's the great I am. He's the Holy One of Israel. And he makes his name and his character and his distinction absolutely clear. And by the way, the Isaiah 40s are great for this. So we get into the several chapters in Isaiah 40 through all the way up to 50. Over and over, he defines himself for the people in marvelous ways. Isaiah 45, verse 22. He says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I've sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me, listen, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Sound familiar? Paul's quoting it. He says, At the name of Jesus, Philippians 2.10, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, is Jesus another God? No. Same God. Same God. For all the wiles of the enemy, for all the tactics he tries to employ, the outcome is that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess. 